This is, this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. This is fine. This is a poor substitute for therapy, but an excellent substitute for other podcasts. We're not like other podcasts. Join us as we find the answers to the universe's biggest questions like, is butter a carb? Does crying burn calories? And what the fuck am I doing with my life? We're here to be your part-time therapist, astrologer, concierge doctor, and fairy godmother. Do you need someone to validate you today? Cool, cool, cool. Come on in. We're fine. This is fine. Jesus loves me, this I know, for he gave me Lexapro. Glennon Doyle, Untamed. Welcome, BBs, my sweet butterflies. It's your friend Dominique here, and we're going to get a little more serious today. Kind of. You know I can't take much super seriously. With that said, we're diving into the world of antidepressants. Are you on some? Do you know someone who is? Are you thinking about talking to your doctor about them? The answer to that is probably. As I was writing the outline for this show, a day later, the New York Times put a huge piece out called The Age of Distract Depression. Here are some stats that I had amassed beforehand. The pharmaceutical journal reported that in the last quarter of 2020, antidepressant prescriptions rose by about 6%. The rate of prescription has tripled since 2000, according to the New York Times. And according to the American Psychological Association, the APA, women are twice as likely to take antidepressants than their male counterparts. Single Care reported that in 2022, there was a 70% increase in fills for generic Lexapro, a 31% increase in fills for generic Zoloft, and a 20% increase in fills for generic Prozac. It's hard to nail down a statistic of just how many people are currently taking them. Stats range between 5% and 16% of Americans. But I can think of about 10 people off the top of my head who are on the same prescription as me. Shout out to Team Wellie B, let alone antidepressants in general. The most recent stat from the New York Times article I just mentioned, almost a quarter of Americans over 18 are on medication for depression, anxiety, and ADHD. This isn't just an American thing either. I'm not going to bog you down with even more stats because I'm hoping you haven't already tuned out from what I just said. So this is a very much a, you know, just trust me, bro kind of moment. But if you Google antidepressant statistics plus insert country here, you'll see what I'm talking about. So what's with the rise in numbers? Are we finally, as a collective, tuning into our mental health and getting help? Are we more depressed than previous generations or simply more attuned to our needs? Is it because access to mental health care, though still excruciatingly difficult, is a bit easier than it was 20 years ago? Does the lessening taboo in this area allow people to access life-saving medication? Or are we being overprescribed? To discuss this today, I've invited a special guest, licensed therapist, sex educator, dating and relationships expert, queer slash poly slash ENM icon, New York City's finest, Rachel Wright, LMFT. Rachel is not only a therapist, but also has personal experience with depression and its various treatments that she's going to be sharing with us today in part A of this series and in the next episode. We're going to talk about hangups, stigmas, insecurities, vulnerabilities, and some pros and cons of antidepressants because not everything is sunshine and butterflies and rainbows, despite what I tell myself every single day. Okay, without further ado, let's get started on Adventures with Antidepressants. Rachel, my friend, thank you so much for being here today and gracing us with your presence. Thank you so much for having me. I'm truly honored to be here. And I'm so excited about this podcast for you and for everyone who's going to listen. And I'm 
so thrilled to be here. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. And Rachel, I mean this every time I say it to you. You truly are a wizard. So I just, you're going to bestow some magic upon us today. And I'm so, so grateful that I get to share that with more than just myself. <laughs> oh, you're, I'm, I'm like blushing over here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously, so grateful. So both of us have a lot of feelings around antidepressants. Today's episode is part one of our adventures with antidepressants. Why is it so important from your perspective why we talk about this today? Oh, man. Okay. So first and foremost, there's so much misunderstanding and there's so much stigma. So I can come at this from two different angles, as you know, one as a therapist and a mental health professional, and then two as someone who has navigated anxiety and depression her whole life. Mm -hmm. So I know both from my personal experience and professional experience that when we don't talk about things, we make assumptions, we create shame, we uh, create narratives or stories, not even on purpose, that may not even be true. And given the amount of people that are taking antidepressants, yeah. we need to be talking about it. Yes, yes. And we've had this conversation like off mic, but, you know, we've gone through it where, especially, you know, my own personal story, when I first, you know, got the news from my doctor, like, hey, I think it's time to explore this, you know, after years of therapy, you know, I, I had this narrative that I built up in my head, like, oh, if I have to take pills for it, it must be really bad. There must be something wrong with me and kind of separating the the prescription from the person, right? And it, there and is this stigma, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I think that it's some people still have this idea that mental health is not physical health. Right. Like they think that it is a mindset issue. Like you can <laughs> yes. think your way out of it. <laughs> right. And like as a therapist, I don't even prescribe medication. Like I want to make that very clear to everybody listening. Psychiatrists, medical doctors, to prescribe medication. Right. I do talk therapy. So I'm not even the person like pushing the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I may say like, hey, I, re I would recommend you go talk to a, ther you know, psychiatrist, et cetera, et cetera. But I, like, I don't have a stake in this. And I personally hate big pharma. Like yes, same. the system sucks. Yes. It is broken. It is awful. These drugs are not on the up and up enough. Like there's so much wrong with it. Correct. And all of that being said, we still need to talk about it. Yes. And we can't just, we can't think our way out of depression. Oh we can't <laughs> talk our way out of depression sometimes. Right. There are times where it is a literal chemical imbalance. And if you had a mineral imbalance, if you had a vitamin imbalance, you would do a medical treatment to change that. And that is what these pills do. Yep. Yeah. I truly felt, I was like, I think I'm having a dopamine recession. And we'll like get more into this later. Right? But I, I was right? actually right, which is weird. <laughs> um, but I, I love that you did bring up like, this is not a pro big pharma episode or topic. Whoa. Like neither of us are fans of big pharma. But then there is a time and a place for when we need certain kinds of pharmacological interventions. So yes. from your vantage point as a clinician, when you are working with I guess I would say client in this context, uh -huh. right? Like you're working with a client uh -huh. and you're doing talk therapy. When do you notice or are there certain markers when you're like, okay, I think this is actually time for me to refer you to a psychiatrist. Is is there like a method to it or is it different case by case? 
It's definitely different case by case. I would say that in general, it is very, it's one of those things, it depends on how big the impairment is. Right. So there is a difference between someone who is experiencing a few depressive symptoms Mm -hmm. versus someone who is experiencing enough of those symptoms to be diagnosed with depression. And then even after that diagnosis, there's a difference between that and someone who is unable to get out of bed, basically catatonic, not eating very much, not sleeping. Like there's a spectrum of all of this stuff. Yeah. And so depending on where someone falls on that spectrum, a therapist may say, you know, hey, we're going to need some assistance here. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, it's not that the medication alone is going to change everything and then, oh, everything's fine. Great. Amazing. (laughs) This is fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's that it's that you it's an and we need. But sometimes the talk therapy, which literally does rewire the brain, Mm -hmm. sometimes we need the medication to help balance out the neurotransmitters in order to assist us in rewiring. It makes it, it's like the black pepper to the turmeric, right? Like it makes it more bioavailable. (laughs) Exactly. Or having like a tiny bit of THC with CBD. Yes. Way more enhanced. It makes it more effective, even though you don't even notice it's there. Yes. Okay. So example, my dog who literally takes Prozac, I've probably mentioned that way too much on this show. Um, (laughs) I... I actually, because I'm insane, brought in a like dog psychologist. <laughs> like um, she's an animal behaviorist and, you know, was talking about separation anxiety and, you know, certain things that made me think she needed some help. And the, even the dog doctor, the dog psychologist was like, you know, this gives her a leg up Prozac um, for dogs. It's called Reconcile. It gives her the ability to calm herself enough so she can focus on the training. Right now, yeah. she can't hear you because she's in such fight or flight right. where the SSRI is going to help her, you know, get that serotonin, chill out a little bit more and focus on the training so she can heal even further. Yes, exactly. That is a perfect example. <laughs> Learn so much from this the dog. the exact same way in humans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Learn so much from Stella. Okay, so, you know, again, we're not fans of big pharma, we do know that there's a time and a place and this, you know, plays a pretty vital role in psychological psychiatric treatment. It's not all sunshine and roses, obviously, even though that's what I like to pretend. I have been hearing more about informed consent when it comes to medical care, basically getting more transparency from your healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. And because you are an educator when it comes to consent and you're in the mental health field, what are some I I guess, legitimate concerns to be aware of when it comes to antidepressants. So I love that people actually understand what informed consent is now. Yes, it's so good. And what, for anyone listening, if you're like, but what is it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. Uh, uh Uh-oh, I wasn't one of those people. That's (laughs) okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Couldn't be me. (laughs) Yeah, we know. So we know what consent is. We know that it's saying, yes, I want this, or yes, I will take it. We're saying yes, consent is opting in. And one of the things about consent is that you can retract it at any time. You can, you know, say yes one day and say no another day. Like, consent is fluid. Informed consent is technically a medical, psychological therapy term, meaning that you are consenting based on the information that your service provider has given you. Right. So when you sign up with a therapist, you actually sign a form called informed consent. 
Wait, and I didn't that know that. was the first time. <laughs> yeah, that was the first time that I even heard that term yeah. was in grad school. We were going over how to write an informed consent contract. And essentially part of what that is, is like, here are the possible risks of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Here are the things that you may experience. Um, Here is the cancellation policy. Here is uh, the law around confidentiality. Here, like everything that someone needs to know to say, yes, I will sit in a room and talk to you about all of the shit in my life. Right. It's like you're you're putting it all on the table. Exactly. Exactly. So with that knowledge, historically, the medical community, as opposed to the therapeutic community, has not been as transparent. Right. They are not required to... Um, now, again, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm sure that there are areas where you have to have this... like surgeries, I know that you sign an informed consent. Yes. But if you go to the doctor and say, hey, I want birth control, they say, cool, here's birth control. Yeah, <laughs> like, so that's true. it. Yes. <laughs> there's there's no informed consent there. It's They're not so like, true. so here are the potential long-term effects of birth right. control pills. Here's how it may impact your third week of your cycle. Like, yeah. all of these things. You don't so, get any of it. I actually have doctor's yeah. notes from one of my medical records. And I looked back right after I had this appointment and there was a section that said, you know, I informed patient of, you know, the side effects, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, you didn't. What? Like, I remember reading that and being flabbergasted because it was in the notes, but I had never been informed of any of it. And I, you know me, I have a pretty solid yeah. memory. I'm very detail oriented and I was not informed. So I feel like this is really, really common. Based on yes. my one experience. <laughs> no, it's true, though. That is that is an experience that I have heard over and over and over. Yeah. So informed consent when it comes to antidepressants is very important in terms of setting expectation of both the onset of the medication, so getting right. on what that's going to be like, then while you're on it, what you can expect and what is not going to happen, and the effects potential effects on your body, your sex drive, we can call these side effects. Yeah. And then getting off of it. What is that mm, going to look like? Yeah. If on the other side of this, you and your provider decide, okay, you know what? We're going to remove this drug from my daily drugs. What does that look like? What does it entail? I, Dominique, I was put on a medication. Um, it's called Effexor okay. is the, the brand name for it. and. <laughs> when I got on this medication, I was told, here, this will help you. Like, <laughs> you need this. <laughs> right. And at the time that I was put on it, A, I was way too young to even understand, like, a- any of these things. Right. And B, I was in such a low place yeah, that, frankly, anyone telling me this will help you, right. I was like, cool, I'll take it. I'll like, take anything. They could have been like, here's heroin. And I would have been like, okay. Like, <laughs> See you I, later. <laughs> yeah. Like if, if it was coming from a doctor, I was like, please just help me. And I was on it for years and years and years and years. And I went to get off of it because my new psychiatrist and therapists were like, you don't need to be on this anymore. Okay. Like it's too intense essentially for lack. We'll just speak in normal words. It's yeah. like too intense for the level of intensity that I needed anymore. So my psychiatrist says, okay, so we need to taper you off um, about 25 milligrams at a time. And I was like, 
25 milligrams at a time, like that's really slow. Yeah. What, like, wh- why? And she says, well, this drug is very hard to get off of. Oh God. Yeah. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Right. And Dominique, my life was consumed by getting off of a Fexer. Wow. Like for weeks, I was going through awful, awful withdrawal effects from this drug. It was insane. Now, would I have still gotten on it had I known that? Probably, yes. Okay. And I would have known that when it was time to get off of it, that I needed to like, have time right. or create, you know, maybe take a week off of work. Right. Like, like prepare an environment for yourself so you can recover. Exactly. Right. Like, exactly. Yeah, that part's yeah. so hard. I've been reading so yes. much about, you know, withdrawal when people are weaning off, which that actually brings me to another question. Like, you know, some individuals, as far as I can tell, are lifers when it comes to, mm-hmm. you know, certain medications like insulin, like if it's your body's not making what you need, there's no other realistic solution. You take this thing yes. for, you know, an indefinite amount of time. And then others, need that kind of temporary solution to get the talk therapy to work a little bit more. You know, they use the psychotherapy or other means and then they wean off. How do people determine the difference? It's a great, great, great question. So this is really interesting because now we are starting to see things like psychedelic treatment for depression Mm -hmm. and other interventions that may take someone who would have been a forever patient in terms of Prozac, you know, any SSRI or SNRI, um, and make them a not forever patient. Right. And so it's, it's really changing the game here. And the, the way that a lot of us actually figure out whether we're a a forever or temporary (laughs) is, you know, did this come on from a significant event in your life. Uh, So for example, if you have never felt depressed, now I'm not saying you never felt sad, you never felt down, like of course we all feel that. But if you have never been depressed and then you lose a parent, right? and you go through the grieving process and it's like three months later and you're having trouble getting out of bed, Mm -hmm. most likely you're going to need temporary support from pills and therapy to help get you back to a place that you were before the event happened. Pre-trauma. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, you're going to be different. I I hate the idea of like going back to how you were because obviously you're going to be very different on the yeah, other side of going changed. through trauma like that. But in terms of your depression levels, in terms of your symptoms, getting back to your whatever was normal for you. Your day-to-day joy and energy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that is something that typically is around temporary support. Whereas, you know, if you were put on an an antidepressant at, uh, you know, 19 through 25 Mm -hmm. and you're in your mid-30s and you've just always been on one. Mm Mm-hmm. It is possible that you may be on it for oh, forever. Yeah. It may not be. And again, a lot of those people are great candidates for things like ketamine treatment and, you know, a lot of these different psychedelic treatments yeah. that are being researched and is so, so exciting. Um, 
but yeah, that's that's kind of a, it's very generalized, but a, a zoomed sure. out way yeah. of, of differentiating. And again, like this is, you know, general conversation. Every person is going to need, you know, very specific, tailored, personalized treatment and support from their own mental health care provider. This is not medical advice, but, you yes, know, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's nice to have that framework and to have the conversation in general, because like you said, we do need to be talking more about it. And, yeah. you know, this is another, I think, method of, like we keep saying, informed consent, knowing a little mm-hmm. bit more, just in case maybe your doctor didn't tell you all the things. You know, I can't yep. tell you how many times, and I don't know if your clients have also gone through this, you know, you get a medication and then you're suddenly Googling, is this thing that happened to me, you know, this past week, is this related to this medication or this medication? Yes. Like, is this a side effect of something or am I just going yep. through it? Um, I, yep. I do that more than I would like to admit. <laughs> um, but yeah, back back around to informed consent yet again, you talked a bit about onset. Can we talk about the, that trial period process when you are just entering into your first foray of adventures in antidepressants? <laughs> Yay. (laughs) Yay, Um, welcome. (laughs) Yeah. So the trial period or the on-ramp, as I like to call it, um, is as messy as an on-ramp getting onto a highway. Yep. Right? There are some where you just kind of merge on and you're like, oh, wow, look, I'm on the freeway. It's (laughs) great. And then there are some where you're like, I almost hit that car. Oh, now we're yielding. Wait, why is there a stop sign? Why are they going so fast? <laughs> like, and there's a million hindrances. And then finally, you're like, okay, cool. Now I'm on the highway again. Yep. It it's is like the heart of LA. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It is so challenging because we, these drugs affect our brain. Mm-hmm. Our brain controls everything. Everything, Everything. which is why when people separate physical and mental health, I'm like, what the are we talking about? (laughs) Right. Yeah. What? Like your brain controls your breath. Like we would not be breathing without the brain. There's a physical brain. Yes, (laughs) it's it's in your skull, in your body. (laughs) My my therapist before he retired basically said, I can't remember. It wasn't Descartes. He's a mathematician, but he was saying that a long time ago, a scientist was like making a deal with the Catholic Church to study cadavers, essentially. And he was like, you can keep the head, I'll take the body, or something like that. And it was like the beginning of the separation of like our brains, our mental health, and what appears to be dental and vision insurance. <laughs> oh my God, that's hysterical. <laughs> anyway, okay. So we're we're talking about mental, physical, being the same thing, the trial period. Yes. Brain is affecting so everything. We're putting this medication into our body that acts on the brain, that mm-hmm. changes how our brain is acting. When you phrase it like that, when you hear me phrase it like that, doesn't it make sense that other things that our brain is in charge of or a part of would also be affected? Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> so for some people, that is your libido. For mm-hmm. other people, that is sweating, like right. hand sweat. For other people, that's headaches. For some people, that is appetite. For other people, it's sleeping. All of these things that our brain actually manages are affected because we're putting something into our body that is affecting our brain. Right. So this trial period or on-ramp is basically a lot of these drugs have side effects only during this on-ramp. Oh. And then after a certain period, they stop. Mm-hmm. 
Now for each one, it's a little different. So talk to your doctor. But one of the ways that we know if a medication is a good fit for somebody is after this on-ramp that the that the side effects have dissipated. Right. So let's say you start off with like 10 side effects. You start taking a medication and you have 10 things. And your doctor says, okay, after six weeks, just tossing out a number, yeah. after six weeks, check back in and tell me how many side effects you're having. Right. And you call them and you're like, hey, okay, so I'm having about eight of the 10 still. Most likely they are going to try a different medication. Yep. If you call and say, hey, I have like two or three out of 10. They're going to be like, okay, can you live with those? And is it helping your mood? Right. And if the answer is yes, it's helping my mood. And yeah, I can probably live with them because it's worth it. Then you found your medication. Right. And that's honestly, that example, I feel like is one of the easier times. I feel like some people go through this for months and months and months. My former doctor told me that when I was first trying mine, and I'll get more into like, you know, the personal story in part two, but there was a six week to six month period and it might not work at all. And we might have to try something completely different at the end of six months. Yeah. And sometimes that's the case. It depends on what it's very, very dependent upon the diagnosis, the medication, the the combination, the person, if they're also in therapy, um, if you're in psychotherapy, like talk therapy, in conjunction with medication, your results will happen generally faster. So fast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because the, like we were talking about before, it assists, they assist each other. Right. Um, If it's just the medication alone, it may, it will be a little bit longer. Right. Yeah. It really is a recipe. Um, And sometimes you really need this active ingredient to (laughs) make that recipe work. Yep. Exactly. So this trial period, you know, 10 symptoms can feel really overwhelming, especially in the beginning, especially when you're already not feeling good. Can we talk about the importance of sticking it out during the trial period, even when it feels hard? Yeah. So <laughs> here, <laughs> uh, call your psychiatrist. Yeah. Like if, if you are in a place where, and this is why it's actually very important to go see a psychiatrist and not just have your primary care doctor prescribe you an antidepressant. True. Primary care doctors do not study psychiatry for very long. Right. They study general family medicine because that is what they practice. Now, all MDs in our country can prescribe any medication. That means that an anesthesiologist can prescribe birth control. (laughs) That means that an OBGYN can prescribe antidepressants. Right. So... I don't know about you, but I like to go to, you know, people who have studied or are experts in whatever area I, I'm dealing with. Who, me? Yeah. <laughs> <Couldn't> <laughs> so be. calling your psychiatrist who's super, you know, in the know and educated both about your diagnosis and the medication will be able to give you more of an insight into if you actually need to stick it out or not. Right. You may be four days in and call and be like, listen, I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z. And they're like, oh my God, stop taking it. Right. Like, that's not for you. Let's try something else. Stop taking it immediately. For example, one of the more severe um, side effects that is more uncommon but still happens is some medications will actually cause suicidal ideation in Mm -hmm. people. So if you are not 
ideating about suicide. And then you start taking a medication and three days later, you're having suicidal ideation. And please don't try to stick that out. Yeah. <laughs> like call your provider. Right. And the more, and again, this is why a psychiatrist, like a, a PCP, a primary care physician, is not on call in the way that a psychiatrist is on call right. because of things like this. Exactly. There should be like, you know, the after hours line where you leave the message, they can call you back. And, yep. you know, obviously yep. this is a position of privilege to be able to have access to someone like that. But as much as yeah. you can, you know, having someone to look out for you during that period. And again, I think that's why it's so important that we keep talking about it right now. We talk about yes. mental health. We talk about antidepressants because then maybe you're a little bit braver to open up to a best friend or a roommate or a parent or a partner and, you know, go through this journey less alone, having someone who can say, hey, you haven't really been like yourself. Maybe you should talk to your doctor, um, especially yep. because it can be so, so difficult when you really are in the thick of depression. Yeah. And, and if you're sitting listening to this thinking like, oh, well, yeah, if I had a hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> I would go do that. Right. I want like there are people out there that have sliding scales. Yes. There are clinics with psychiatrists that work one day of their week at a at a clinic for people on a sliding scale based on income. You know, there are there are options. It's right. just it's finding it. Yep. I can recommend one for therapy. They're called Open Path Psychotherapy Collective. Okay. And they have sessions, no insurance needed, sessions for as low as $50. Wow, that's amazing. Especially yeah. because the national average, regardless of state, I think is $185 or $190. Yeah. It's, Which, it's wild. Which, you know, makes sense because like, look, I, I was... I am slash was $300,000 in student loan debt. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> from becoming a therapist. So like right. therapists are not trying to like rob you, take your money or <laughs> yeah. rob you. Yeah, they're, like, it, it is in relation to how much time and unpaid work and schooling right. and everything goes into becoming it. And that doesn't mean that they don't have space for a sliding scale. Totally. You know, I you know that you know this, but yeah. anybody listening, I have always had a sliding yep. scale and for who it's for has changed. You know, sometimes yeah. it's for students. Sometimes I have it for artists. Sometimes it's sex workers. Sometimes it's literally anyone yeah. who needs it. Um, but lots and lots and lots of therapists have that. And so like, ask, yeah. ask them. And if they don't, they will refer you to someone who does. Yeah, that's a that's a cool part. I think uh, I've met and worked with a lot of therapists in my career and their ability to refer is really special. Mm -hmm. It's just, it makes the search a little bit less difficult for someone who's already going through a hard time. And if you add, yeah. you know, financial struggle on top of that, it's even worse. So exactly. Uh, yeah, I think also it's important to point out that a lot of therapists don't work with health insurance, not because they don't want to be accessible, but because of the difficulties of working with health insurance and discrimination. Yep. And the ethics of health insurance companies. Exactly. So it's not because they don't want to be accessible. And I had I learned this no. the hard way. I was angry when I first started looking into this like years and years and years ago. Like, if you want to help people, why don't you take my insurance? And then I, I started learning more. That's a different topic, but I feel like it's just important to note. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you saying that. When, when I first started my private practice, the very first article I ever wrote was actually like an answer to a frequently asked question that wound up turning into an article. Wow. And it was the reasons why I don't take insurance. Yeah. Because I didn't take it from the go. 
And people were like, what are you talking about? Like you're making yourself inaccessible. And I was like, no, I'm making myself ethical and safe. And I am happy to, yes. And I'm happy to have this conversation with anyone who wants to. And I wound up having this conversation so many times that I turned it into this thing where I could just like send them a link and yeah. be like, read this. And if you have questions, we can talk more about it. Oh, I love um, that. Can you send me that link and I'll put it in the description of this episode? I will. Yay. It was from my old, old website. So I'll try to find, okay. <laughs> try to find it. <laughs> it's time to resurface. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Okay. So last topic I want to touch on before we close up part one. Um, I sent you a link to this study, and I just want to kind of, I guess, give an overview to people listening. There was a study in Saudi Arabia that indicated that antidepressants may not improve quality of life. This was a big headline in the science and medical world, but I think it's important to point out some, I guess, background of the study and some different... Mm, some variables and, you know, different elements that play a role in determining uh, what led to that headline, but also what didn't lead to that headline that gets left out. Because I think a lot of people, especially if you're not familiar with reading these kind of works, these scientific papers and studies, you really do just kind of default to the conclusion and the headline. So the New York Times reported on the study and basically said how helpful are antidepressants really, but they pointed out that the 12-week duration of the clinical trials, like, doesn't really account for the long-term benefits or side effects. Yep. Um, to quote them, one problem is that the study, which was based on data from more than 17 million Americans who participated, compared groups of people who may have been experiencing different levels of depression. So there are all these variables. Whenever I read a study, a scientific article, my thought, especially if I have a different take, is always like, okay, well, what's the bias? Who paid for this? Yeah. Um, so I would yeah. love to get your take on the study as well. I I agree with the New York Times. <laughs> but I know, hot take. Yeah, hot take. Um, New York Times is right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which they often are. You know, sometimes they get it wrong. You yeah. know, some, their, their no theater perfect. and restaurant critiques are sometimes <laughs> a little harsh and off. And you are my, an expert in, in that field. Opinion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's complete. I mean, I live with like three chefs and I'm yes. doing theater. So therefore, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love um, it. What really bothered me about this study is, so, for, okay, let me name this first. I'm really glad that we're studying this stuff. Yes. Period. Done. Okay. And, and. <laughs> <laughs> the title of this study is, or the article that goes to the study is antidepressants are not associated with improved quality of life in the long run, comma, study finds. Yep. Now, this did not look at the long run. Like, what does the long run mean? Right. What do these words mean? Also, what qualifiers are they using for quality of life? Mm-hmm. And what metric, yeah, what are the metrics? How are they measuring that? Right. And they did the study in Saudi Arabia, which is going to have a different version of quality of life ah. than the United States of America. So true. Yeah, right? totally. Like, and, and for like all over the place, America's a dumpster fire right now. <laughs> and so like, Yes. People, people trying to find quality of life in America, like antidepressants are, uh, uh, you know, a small a drop in the pond. Yes. Um, but what gets published and what people see on their Apple News right. or on their homepage of Google is just antidepressants are not associated with improved quality of life in this yep. new study. Yep. 
And all of a sudden, people are like, oh, I should probably get off my Prozac. Mm -hmm. And then also they don't realize because they didn't have informed consent that there's a wean-off period that's going to be kind of miserable. (laughs) Yeah. And they don't ask their doctor. They're like, oh, but I read this study, so therefore I'm the expert. Right. And like you're saying, like, Dominique, I had to take an entire semester class to learn how to read scientific papers. Yeah, totally. It's a whole, it's an art. It was a whole semester, yes. (laughs) It's a science and an art. (laughs) Tedious, like tedious and totally worth it. Like, I am so grateful that I know how to read these. And frankly, if I were more of an expert in it, which I'm not, I would teach a class for people on how to do it. Yeah. Um, If anyone listening is an expert in this, please start like teach a workshop for people like how to read scientific journals for normal for dummies (laughs) for normies yeah yeah Yeah, (laughs) i should do an episode well i'm gonna find someone okay do it yeah okay great idea thank you on that note this was a fantastic part one thank you so much for joining us for this part of the antidepressant adventures thank you for having me okay that was a lot of information to take in and some pretty heavy information at that There's a lot more to talk about, so we decided to wrap it up here for part A of this two-part series, and we'll pick it up again next week. Until then, you can find Rachel on Instagram at theright underscore Rachel. That's T-H-E-W-R-I-G-H-T underscore R-A-C-H-E-L. You can also find her brand new podcast, The Right Conversations, that's W-R-I-G-H-T like her last name, anywhere podcasts are available. We're so grateful you joined us for part A of Adventures with Antidepressants. And we'll see you here next week. A bien so. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of This Is Fine. I've been your host, Dominique Michelle Astorino. We're based in San Diego, recording in studio at DLI Productions in Pacific Beach with Emmy Award-winning sound designer Dan De La Isla. This is a comedy and advice podcast, but for legal reasons, this entire podcast is a joke and none of it is medical advice. To download the transcript or learn more, visit thisisfinepodcast.com. <laughs>